0: to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week.
1: If the Fed successfully engineers a soft landing, that does involve companies having to pay more to borrow for quite an extended period of time and finding it that much harder to pass costs on.
0: John authors on how a soft landing for the economy does not mean a soft landing necessarily for markets. Also, Alexis and how exactly you can be making a quarter of a million dollars a year and still be living paycheck to paycheck. Later, we'll speak with Stephen Mim on the history of remote work as the number of workers back in offices drops once again. It's partially due to a COVID resurgence, sure. Another factor, though, the fear of crime in big cities such as New York. So let's kick off this week with Justin Fox. He's been digging into the available data for some clarity on just how dangerous our metropolis is. So, Justin, I think there's a bit of a trope out there that crime is higher in New York City and that perhaps even the city is going back to the
2: 1980s. Is there any truth to that? Crime is higher in the city. Basically, as people emerged from the lockdown in 2020, murders and shootings shot up really dramatically. Other crime didn't. Now the murders and shootings are starting to decline a little. Other crimes are up. But it's still miles away from the sort of homicide rates that New York had in the 1980s or early 90s. Some big cities, it is back to about as bad as it was then. Philadelphia, Chicago. But what's kind of funny is not New York, not L.A., which seem to be the places getting the most publicity about crime. Exactly. So you write that
0: the rate in 2021 is still less than a fifth of what it was in 1990. I think a lot of people would be really, really surprised to hear that. But it's not the case all over the country. You dug into the CDC's wonder databases. Tell us a little bit about these wonderments.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I'd heard about them before the pandemic, but I first waded into them, sadly, not long after the pandemic started. And um, it's a remarkable, if pretty confusing at first, set of databases that, among other things, allow you to just look at all causes of death in the U.S. You can sort it by cause of death. You can sort it by place. You can sort it by year. You can sort it by demographic groups. And of
0: course, you did all of that. And what conclusions did you come to in terms of things like location and how that matters or incomes and how that matters?
2: Well, what I did for this particular exercise is I was looking at homicide rates. Normally, it's the suburban counties and large metro areas have the lowest homicide rates most years. New York City has had actually fallen below even that for a couple of years before the pandemic. Since the pandemic, it's slightly higher. But it, you know, New York City has a lower homicide rate than rural America even now, substantially lower. And then I just started thinking about one of the things people are very concerned about right now, and with reason, mm-hmm. is that the subway is, seems more dangerous exactly. than it was a couple of years ago. And it is more dangerous than it was a couple of years ago. Basically, overall crime levels in the subway are about the same, but ridership is about 40% less, so if you're riding, it's a higher risk of crime. I think this way, and I think a lot of people don't, but when I think about the subway and the risks I face in there, I also think about things like, gee, what if I had to drive on the freeway in Houston all the time? You throw in transport accidents, which is a grab bag of mostly car crashes, but also I guess you could tip over your tractor or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you put the two together, and suddenly New York City goes to being much safer than any other broad classification, three times safer than rural and small-town America.
0: Brooklyn and the Bronx come in a respectable 48th and 127th place in the country's mortality rankings. Did you expect that?
2: Um, I was a little surprised and that the the difficulty, one of the things that the CDC does is it knows everything about mortality, but it won't tell you everything. So if there are fewer than 10 deaths in a county, it just doesn't disclose it at all because mm. it is afraid that you can figure out who they were. So what I did is I then went beyond traffic accidents and looked at other external causes of death, which, you know, you look through the list and there's things like being bitten by a snake or drowning in the pool. And most of those seem less likely to befall you in New York City than other places. <laughs> they b- bitten by rats is in there too, which... <laughs> I don't know um, if
0: I want to know those Yeah, statistics. exactly.
2: I didn't I actually didn't look up that specifically. So so I came up with with some tweaking and such a, a sort of list of deaths from external causes that aren't things that basically just hit old people like falls. And when you do that list, what you get is the counties with the lowest mortality rates include a lot of yeah, Brooklyn, the Bronx, a bunch of wealthy suburban counties. And definitely New York City and the New York metropolitan area are among the safest places in the country overall.
1: The police officer's job is not to find out what is the psychological profile, what is if the person has other issues at home. That's our job as a city. Their job is to take dangerous people off the
3: street. My job and the job of my agencies is to prevent people from being dangerous.
0: What should the mayor be doing? He comes out and he gives press conferences. He talks a good game. He obviously has good intentions. At the same time, attitudes aren't changing. Behavior isn't changing. And there's still such a huge question mark over remote work and whether it's necessary or not to go into the office.
2: And this isn't the answer to all of that. I mean, things have been getting worse in New York over the past couple of years. It looks like the murder wave is fading, but other kinds of crimes are up. And so, you know, it's someone who felt comfortable coming into New York four years ago. It's reasonable that they might feel a little less comfortable now. What is just so striking, though, is when you look at it and you have this broader view of what risk is than just violent crime, you know, and there are arguments for and against doing it that way, then New York is a really safe place, one of the safer places you can be in this country. Some of the
0: received wisdom is still true, unfortunately. For example, the city of Baltimore's homicide rate is still a staggering 58.5 per 100,000 residents. That's twice that of Chicago and more than 10 times
2: New York City, as you point out. So there are other places where it's yeah, still— Yeah, urban crime is not a myth. Yeah, And, you know, crime in New York is not a myth, but it's just it's so much lower than in other cities and in a lot of places that aren't big cities.
0: And as Justin points out, even the safest areas in the U.S. remain killing fields compared with most of Western Europe. In Paris, for example, a homicide rate in recent years below one per 100,000. Don't forget, get in touch via Twitter at Vonnie Quinn or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. Opinions and comments always welcome. So, if you're not going into the office for whatever reason, you might be repeating a pattern from past eras. Let's get to University of Georgia history professor and Bloomberg Opinion columnist Stephen Mim. So Stephen, telecommuting has obviously been around for a long time, but we don't often think about its origins. Talk to us a little bit about how it developed in the first place.
4: So it goes back to a kind of heady period in the 60s when some urban planners and theorists of urban life, who were concerned about traffic congestion, especially in places like Los Angeles, began to think about whether it might be possible to substitute communication for transportation, in other words, have people communicate with their offices rather than commuting to their offices. Hmm. It began with a, a couple kind of obscure articles in academic journals, as movements oftentimes do. Hmm. And then in the late 1960s, there was a good illustration of some of these concepts that the government sponsored not because it was trying to prove that telecommuting could work, but it was trying to do something else, namely run the space program.
0: Right. And so the system emerges from the Apollo moon landing program. Explain to us what it is.
4: Right. So the Apollo missions were extraordinarily complex, and they linked all of these different contractors and mission control areas and military people across the country. And so these people had to communicate in real time, and you you couldn't just keep flying them back and forth across (laughs) the country. so. So the federal government set up these things called Apollo Action Centers which were prototypes of a kind of telecommuting meaning that People in different parts of the country would gravitate toward their local control center and tap in via this two-way speakerphone connection that the government set up that worked at 50 kilobytes per second for mm. communicating data, which is one one-thousandth of our current upload speed. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and after they finished it, they did a cost assessment, and they realized that they had saved for a dollar they plowed into this, $9 in travel and salary costs. Wow. And so that was pretty dramatic. And so one of the people who had worked for NASA was this guy, Jack Nillis, who was a rocket scientist, kind of worked on classified projects. We don't even know what he did, mm-hmm. honestly. But he went to University of Southern California, which was, of course, Traffic Congestion Central. And it was there that he took command of a team of people who wanted to figure out if there were a way to kind of implement some version of this for civilians and they came up with this pilot program with an insurance company where they did the exact same thing but in LA it wasn't people working from home it was people coming to like the nearest node and they would commute in to the central office mm. But over phone lines and eventually computer lines, because it was at that moment that all of this technology, computer networks like ARPANET, so the technology came online.
0: Right. And if you had asked me, I probably would have mumbled something about telephone networks or, as you said, the diminishing size of computers or maybe even the rise of skyscrapers and inner city living. But in actual fact... When it really took hold was in response to the OPEC oil embargo, as you point out, in 1973.
4: Right. And so these guys were doing this project and all of a sudden everyone wants to save money on gasoline and and there they are. They've got a solution, you know, like don't go into the office. That was the first iteration of telecommuting was a kind of Dispersal of the workforce as opposed to like total diffusion where everyone's working from their home.
0: Now, I'm curious, Um, unions were a lot stronger back in the day and more prevalent in the workplace then. So, how did unions react? Was this something that they reacted to positively or negatively?
4: Rather negatively. As soon as telecommuting became kicked around in policy circles, unions like the AFL CIO said, well, you know, wait a second, there's some peril here because how are you going to enforce workplace safety? At home you know when someone trips over the extension cord are they on on the company's workman's comp or are they is it just their fault so there are all these things that they criticize but the real criticism actually interestingly came eventually from an unlikely source which was management
0: hmm. how is that unlikely um,
4: <laughs> well uh, true <laughs> well you think about management if given an opportunity to save money they would take it right But the idea of letting their employees work off-site, that was worrisome. But that didn't stop a lot of futurists in the late 70s, people like Alvin Toffler, from towning the vision that we would, by the end of the 1980s, all be working at home in what he called our electronic cottages.
0: Ooh, electronic cottages. I like that. What, though, did we find out conclusively about productivity and expense reduction?
4: That's an excellent question and one that it depends on who you talk to. The Mm -hmm. early research and much of the later research suggested that, in fact, there were productivity gains for that pool of employees that was somewhat self-selecting who worked from home. So, in other words, in the 70s and 80s and even well into the aughts. The pandemic, though, case studies that are coming out of that suggest something else happened, which is the productivity actually went down. Mm -hmm and that there were other problems with cohesion of workforces. This is probably easier to square than it sounds, namely that, like, if 3% of your workforce is working off-site and they're really well-suited for that kind of work, fine, but when you take everyone and send them home to their electronic cottages, (laughs) to use Toffler's phrase, a lot of them are trying to contend with everything from like walking the dog to caring for toddlers to doing everything else that they really would prefer not to be doing while they work and previously had divided. So there may be ways in which these two experiments, the experiments of early telecommunicating and the pandemic experiment, are really apples and oranges in terms of
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing, and and these are very much ongoing investigations, how much did cities and do cities and their planners have a say in the remote versus in-office workplace debate? It would seem like they would want to have a say. And obviously, some cities are very much suffering post-pandemic because of remote work. Other cities are thriving. Is there a conclusion on that?
4: (laughs) There isn't a conclusion, but you're absolutely right, that for urban planners, this is extraordinarily disruptive because there are ways in which, obviously, this hurts central business districts if people cease to come in. At the same time, though, it could also create massive demand for services in more decentralized, scattered nodes. So it's there are ways this could play out that are really kind of, in many cases, perhaps even counterintuitive. So, for example... We think of how telecommuting limits traffic congestion, right? The flip side of that is if everyone can go anywhere at any time, you're also maybe putting a kind of constant lower level congestion on the traffic grid at all times. Yeah, And that could, in a way, be very disruptive in its own right.
0: And hard to plan for.
4: Just exactly.
0: on all of this, thinking back to the competition for the new Amazon headquarters, it almost seems quaint. It almost seems like a waste of resources for local governments to be doing things like offering incentives in an era of remote work.
4: Yeah, no, because think about it in terms of what if the jobs that you're bringing here are being performed by people, like you bring them here and then they end up being performed by people in another state. Exactly. I, I, There are all sorts of ways in which this messes with a lot of the usual incentive structures that we think about when it comes to cities and attracting economic growth.
0: Stephen Mim there. So, you're working from anywhere, and you're making a quarter of a million dollars. Sounds perfect, right? Well, Alexis Leondas dug into some data which show more than a third of you are living paycheck to paycheck. Sounds startling? Well, let's hear more from Alexis herself. So Alexis, how on earth can you be making a quarter of a million dollars a year and still be living paycheck to paycheck?
3: I know, Bonnie, it sounds absurd. I mean, you know, just to put it in perspective, $250,000 is almost four times the median U.S. salary and puts um, those earners in the top top 5% of all earners in America. So to hear so many, um, according to the survey that I highlighted in my column, one-third of them, more than one-third, 36% of them say that even with that kind of income, they're basically spending everything they make each month and living, quote-unquote, paycheck to paycheck, is very unnerving.
0: Does this have anything to do with the pandemic working from home, large item expenses, perhaps, or or perhaps people were eating out or getting takeout more because they potentially had a more flexible schedule? That's a good question. I don't know if it's so much about remote work, but I
3: do think housing is one of the big culprits. I think with housing, we've seen mortgage rates skyrocket. We've seen home prices appreciate so incredibly much. So I think when you take those two things together, and especially for this high-income group, they tend to probably leverage themselves. And because of that, I think housing is, is one of the reasons folks in this cohort are feeling so stretched.
0: Is there a need to put in a bit of a caveat that this might be a bit of an inflation story as well? Are we definitely seeing the impact of inflation on these salary earners?
3: Definitely. And I think it ties into what you said before, which is we are also seeing people who, because they were home, you know, at this level, they're starting to travel more. They're starting to eat out. They're starting to do more things. So all of these things are kind of happening at the same time. And right now they've been lucky enough to have their student loan payment on hold. Um, but that's going to change soon. So that's something really people have to start thinking about and budgeting for. That
0: was really eye opening. So hundreds of dollars a month that would have been potentially coming out of that salary is on moratorium because they're taking advantage of the student loan repayment moratorium. So what happens when that kicks back in again, assuming it does?
3: Right, right. I mean, student loan debt for this for this crowd is a very big deal. Um, more than 32% of total federal student loan debt is held by households with incomes from about $100,000 to $375,000. And that's the largest percentage of any income group. So, so many high earners have professional or doctorate degrees. So if you're an average student or you went to graduate school and if you take your undergraduate loans coupled with your graduate student loans, you could be looking at total debt as more than $82,000. That means monthly payments of about $950 a month have been on hold for almost 30 months.
0: Which is terrifying, given that rents are going up in big cities, as well as this potentially coming back into play for these people. I mean, it's terrifying within reason. We're talking about people who earn a quarter of a million dollars here, so I can't be too concerned. But you do have to wonder, if they're making four times the median wage in the United States, what are those earning less than that doing to finance their lives?
3: Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, I think the big difference, again, is mortgage, so homeownership versus renting. A lot of people who are making less money, they don't have to deal with rising mortgage costs, but they do have to deal with rising rent, so that's obviously something that has to be factored into it. And I just want to point out one key detail of this group, these people who are making at least $250,000 who say they're living paycheck to paycheck, they're able to still pay their bills, but the bills that they're paying include automated savings for things like retirement and college plans. So it is really important, when, at least when I think of paycheck to paycheck, to me that's someone who whatever they're earning, they're spending basically on housing and food. These people, that's not necessarily the case. They are doing things that ultimately will help them in retirement or their kids' college plans down the line.
0: And that is a huge caveat because those are things that catch lower income earners out later on in life and it's very difficult. The other thing that I wanted to point out here is revolving loans, credit card debt. These people are not necessarily suffering late fees or anything like that because they do tend to pay off any credit card debt that they incur.
3: Exactly right. That was kind of surprising to me because you would think if you're living paycheck to paycheck, and even among this cohort, there are those who are living paycheck to paycheck and aren't even able to pay all of their bills, so you would think someone would be turning to credit cards. But according to a survey by Payments.com and The Lending Club, For those who say they're earning at least $250,000 and are living paycheck to paycheck, 60% of them are saying they're not revolving a balance. So they're paying off their credit card balances in full every month. That said, though, there was a Fed report recently that said the end of student loan forbearance could lead to a deterioration in credit risk profiles for borrowers. It didn't look at specific income levels, but again, it's just worth raising. So far, this group doesn't seem to be turning to credit cards to plug the gap, but will that continue once these student loan payments get turned back on?
0: Alexis, was there any question asked about what happens if we do see a recession or if we start to see unemployment go up once again? So we're in a very tight labour market and a very labour friendly labour market.
3: It, that's, that's a great point that right now it still seems like despite what consumers, especially at the higher end, may be saying about being pessimistic with respect to their finances, they're still spending, you know, maybe they've reined in their spending a bunch, but they're still spending a bit above average. Once that starts to turn, and especially if we start to see some labor market changes, that's, I think, when we'll start to get worried. And, you know, then maybe those credit card balances will start to go up.
0: Alexis Leanders. Do get in touch with comments and opinions. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. Stanley Druckenmiller told investors at the Sone conference this week we're maybe six months into a bear market, and predicting a soft landing means going against decades of history. Yet more people are seeing the possibility, including PIMCO's Tony Crescenzi.
4: It does seem like the odds of a soft landing are reasonably good. But it's tough to manage. What the Federal Reserve wants, of course, is to avoid an outright recession.
0: I had a chat with John Authors, who's been warning that even if the Fed does accomplish a soft landing, doesn't mean it won't get ugly for investors. So, John, there does seem to be Mm. a little optimism out there, whether it's warranted or not, that the Fed will be able to thread the needle and pull off a soft landing. But you point out the risk of a stock market, hard landing, is there and should be taken very seriously no matter what happens with the economy.
1: Yes, that's true. And the same is also true of of the credit market. If a soft landing means the Fed getting rates up to, say, 3 3.5% and successfully bringing inflation down while growth slows down but we avoid outright contraction, and I think most people would deem that a pretty big policy success and a soft landing at this point, then that implies some pretty nasty things for profit margins, which are historically high. Companies are doing extremely well out of the amount of operating leverage they have at the moment.
0: Yeah, Explain that to us as a little sidebar, because how are profit margins widening when everything else seems to be contracting, except for prices, obviously? (coughs) I I mean, I guess there is your answer, right?
1: Uh, So far, inflation has helped companies, yes. In aggregate, there are obviously some that have suffered, but generally speaking, they have had enough pricing power to pass on costs to the consumer. That means the inflation problem continues. But profits so far aren't badly affected. And obviously, those companies that really have had a problem passing on prices have been punished very aggressively. Now, you are at a point where I think there's a number of factors behind this. You could get into the political issue of whether it's due to the lack of antitrust and the fact that there's limited competition these days. But low rates is a very big part of it. If you can borrow as cheaply as you've been able to for the last decade or so, it's that much easier to make a profit on what you sell.
0: And it does seem like input costs aren't going up as much as they're putting prices. Um, And
1: that basically means if the Fed successfully engineers a soft landing, that does involve companies having to pay more to borrow for quite an extended period of time and finding it that much harder to pass costs on and that comes out of their profits.
0: Now they have been borrowing at yes. frenetic rates and as you point out, you know, companies with strong balance sheets are maybe not even exactly in fashion yeah. these days. Will they even need to borrow for a while?
1: That would be, it'd be nice if they didn't. The problem, I suspect, is that uh, a lot of companies are working on the assumption that they can roll over their debt pretty quickly. So the rate may not matter so much. It's whether the availability of credit to roll over loans once they come due, that could be much more of an issue because that's the way you get into suddenly having to pay a higher rate and finding it much harder to do that. Now, that does become an issue because the market has been rewarding companies for paying out dividends, for doing stock buybacks generally things that don't help you strengthen up your balance sheet if you have protracted higher yields. And again, we're not talking stagflation, Paul Volcker, 15%. If you're just talking about yields staying where they are or a little bit higher for a year or two, that very much changes the mathematics for companies.
0: What happened to the idea of the fortress balance sheet?
1: That's an interesting one. I I think... Partly, you do have an array of companies bought to an extent that they became overpriced on the back of the strength of their balance sheets. One of the great appeals of the fang stocks was that they were seen almost as a modern day equivalent of treasury bonds in that you were so confident that nothing was going to go too wrong there. They were going to keep making profits and they had barely any debt.
0: Suddenly egg on faces everywhere.
1: Well well, yeah. So so but there's still none of those companies I just mentioned is going to go bust anytime no. soon. I'm prepared to say that one on the record. <laughs> and, A bold call. Yeah, and um, so it's important to say that the fact that weak balance sheet companies are actually outperforming strong balance sheet companies quite significantly this year, which is an extraordinary thing to happen when rates are going up very sharply. That's in some parts a perverse reaction to the fact that people have noticed they paid too much for the fangs and the fangs have been falling very sharply. So having discovered this fascinating factoid that weak balance sheets are actually doing well, I perhaps should admit that part. However, you would think weak balance sheet companies would be pummeled at this point because plainly the mathematics, the arithmetic for them is getting much worse. And that hasn't really happened.
0: Not only that, but you also took a look at historic default rates uh, published by the Deutsche Bank team once a year, and you found that even if recession arrives, we're really only looking at a peak speculative default rate of about 10% in the United States, according to Deutsche Bank. I mean, that's not a lot, and that doesn't allow for much creative destruction, as you point out.
1: Yes, that is an argument that I have some sympathy with. I'm not sure how far I'm prepared to go, but the argument of the people in what you might call the Austrian School of Economics who believe in Schumpeter creative destruction is that the succession of bailouts, the very low rates that we've had for 20 years, have led to a flabby, relatively uncompetitive, inefficient form of capitalism, because companies that ought to have gone bust by now are surviving and hogging capital that could be better used by somebody more innovative and that does play very much into the whole idea of deindustrialization and inequality. It makes it that much harder to create jobs for lots of people and it means that those who are lucky enough to own stock do very well. So there's certainly a very good argument that a higher default rate would actually be helpful.
0: What happens this time? Does the Fed manage to do it, pull off the soft landing? And to get back to Tony Crescenzi's point, a growth recession ensues?
1: I think that possibility is rising. I'm not sure I would go along with Tony Crescenzi to the point of saying that it's more likely than any other option. But certainly, if you look at the latest unemployment data, claims and so on, you do have some inkling that the employment market may be calming down somewhat without turning brutally negative. And it's also possible that you'll see inflation numbers begin to come down. However, I still think this is going to be a very, very difficult landing you know, it is possible, and they're still just about on the path that would take them there. But it's narrow, and it will be easy to be knocked off course. The biggest risk, by a big margin, is oil, almost back to the highs in the first few days after the invasion of Ukraine. Mm. If that carries on, if the politics of OPEC don't deliver a cut, and if the geopolitics of the situation work out, in one of the worst ways that seems possible at the moment rather than better ones, and oil gets up towards 150, that's problematic. That affects everybody's costs. It either destroys demand or it puts up inflation. And of the course landing, it makes the political situation
0: hard. even harder as well then, because you know, the president will be blamed for it and yes. you know, maybe he will engineer or something.
1: Well, he has to try to do something because the history is very plain that gas prices particularly in this country where we are the states are more important than far more important in fact than their weight within the index their weight within people's actual budgets should dictate because they're so variable and they're so visible you make your purchases regularly you're aware of the price because it's literally there in big numbers by the side of the road yeah it is so salient and so clear And that means, obviously, it's one of the areas which the Fed really has no control over at all. It does Uh, seem
0: like there's a lot the Fed doesn't have control over these days, though, as well. mm. It's not just oil that's problematic Ukraine-wise. It's also food and it's also, you know, all sorts of things.
1: Yes, the things that, 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 well, yes and no. Those things are very important and there are alarming possibilities of You've seen Peru and you've seen Sri Lanka. Some bigger emerging economies might yet see civil unrest over very high food prices. Mm. There's form for that. Arguably, the Arab Spring was lit by high food prices exactly. 10, 11 years ago. And that has to be clear. I personally care more about the human beings who would be affected by that. Mm. But if we're being dispassionate and talking about it as an investment, that's also potentially very bad for the supply of certain commodities. The fact that certain commodities that are needed only come from places that have a problematic relationship with the West. You know, cobalt is from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm. Lithium is Bolivia. These are not places you would feel very comfortable about if you get the kind of unrest that is easy to imagine in places like that. That really messes up the attempt to move to electric cars, improve battery technology, and so mm. on. So, yes, there are very great risks to the soft landing for reasons that are beyond the Fed's control. In terms of those things that are within the Fed's control having allowed themselves to get blown badly off course, you know, the last month or two has moved in a direction that would have them feeling reasonably comfortable. The, yeah. the things are consistent with their eventually landing softly.
0: And of course, the ECB is going to start raising rates soon as well, which won't hurt. Well, we
1: haven't got there yet. but If that begins to weaken the dollar, that also helps avoid some of the really nastier knock-on effects that are possible in the developing world. Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: John authors there. Do get in touch to continue this conversation. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. That does it for Bloomberg Opinion this week. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion.